Welcome back to Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and uh, joining me, as always, or almost as always, we got Adam Myros. Uh, hello, Steve. Oh, uh, you excited for another Oscar season, baby? We love the award shows. Uh, this is—it's always a trial. These episodes. <laughs> At least I'm hoping uh, this won't be like previous years where we've had to do like three-hour multi-part episodes because I, I think it's—it's it's a High time we had an Oscar episode where we don't grind our audience into dust with our, our voices, but we'll see how this one goes. Uh, also joining us today, we got Jack Eason. Yeah, you get drunk on one podcast and it just comes back to haunt you time and time again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. My God. Honestly, if you're tuning in for one of our Oscar episodes, serves you right. All bets are off. You don't know what you're getting. <laughs> I choose to believe the silence before you responded was you, like, shocked that I didn't want to just grind our audience into dust again. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah, let, a little let's upset go with by that. That. That, that. That sounds right. Yeah, that's fine. Well, I mean, one of these movies successfully ground me into dust. Shouldn't I pass that pain along? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in many ways, one of these films kind of mirrors the show where... Uh, you know, we, we probably go on for a little bit too long, and the points that we're making are entirely irrelevant, and it calls back to a bygone era that maybe no one actually cares about. So, uh, yeah, lot to think about there. But more importantly, we have a special guest this week, uh, all the way from across the pond, our international correspondent, which is the title we have bestowed upon him, because, you know, if you're on the show more than once, you're, you officially get a title. Uh, he's from the land of Are You Being Served and Margaret Thatcher, and you can read his bylines <laughs> pretty much anywhere where reputable film criticism can be found. Uh, we got Alistair Ryder. How you doing, Alistair? Thank you for having me back, Steve. And, uh, yeah, what can I say? Another cracking Oscar slate last year. You know, you made me watch some shit, and uh, I have to say you've really gone and topped it this year, so thank you very much. Yeah, you know, we can always... You can't count on us for basically anything at all, but... Uh, if you if you want to upset people who are kind enough to be guests on your show, if you want to <laughs> alienate your audience, we are always here for that. So you can count on that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, man, what a, what a year it's been, and I'm I'm it feels crazy that we've made it all the way to another Oscar season. And this show is it's going to be a little bit different as far as Oscar shows go. Uh, I think they're looking to inject a little bit of energy into the ceremony, uh, especially after last year. So uh, that's why they, they ended up getting Robin Williams as the host. And, I mean, I get it, it's the Oscars, but part of me is kind of shocked they were able to get him in the first place. Does that seem odd at all to you guys? No. Why, why would that be odd? Seems perfectly normal. He's he's a comic, but he, he doesn't he doesn't have that you know kind of old Hollywood sensibilities. But I, he is being joined by Jane Fonda and Alan Alda, so uh, those are kind of the Hollywood stalwarts that they they probably got to uh, you know kind of ground him a little bit. I'm I'm imagining. I can tell you, Stephen, Robin Williams is a guy with a bright future ahead of him, and I think he will always make us smile, always. Exactly. That's that's how I feel, man. Same, same. Uh, you know, and, and then the other interesting thing. Kind of surrounding the show itself is uh, they're they're kind of looking for a ratings boost by having Barbara Walters interview the president, and that's going to air just before. Uh, I I don't know what the topic of that's going to be. They really haven't shared much. Uh, I'm guessing there won't be much of a focus on like the U.S. meddling in Central and South American politics or how the <laughs> you know the thought of like bombing Libya can bring the president to climax. However. We might get a few fun recollections from his time in Hollywood on the set of, like, Bedtime for Bonzo or something. But uh, I was going to say, do you think that, that Walters is going to really take kid gloves with his mental health? You know, he's slipping a little these days. 
that's one of those things. That's one of those things that honestly, if you let it go, honestly, you're setting a, a precedent. I feel personally, I think the, the president should stay sharp as a tack. You know, you worry down the line what that might what might happen. You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 10, 20 years from now, uh, what's what's that going to look <sighs> like if say. we have someone in the Oval Office who's not all there mentally? I, it's it, it's really impossible to say. But hey, enough about that. Let's uh, let's jump into these Best Picture nominations for this year because. Uh, damn, we got we got five of these things we got to get through, and it's it's another year too where we've seen this in the past. Instead of kind of spreading things around, you have a few films that are really dominating the entire show, and that's definitely where the space that these best picture noms occupy. So every movie that we're going to talk about is nominated in a, a bunch of different categories. Uh, so the first one I want to I want to break down here is, by my estimation, one of the biggest piles of shit I have ever had. <laughs> Uh, the joy of sitting through, and what a sit-through it was, because it, it, it took up my entire afternoon. This is, how long is this, nine hours? We watched Out of Africa. And if you're asking yourself, what is Out of Africa? Just imagine, like, laundering loneliness uh, of unlikable assholes through kind of classic Hollywood nostalgia and sentimentality. So it's like Antonioni, but with but that bleakness is replaced by, like, the grand scale of Gone with the Wind and, like, old Hollywood wankery. Uh, it doesn't work. It's dissonant as hell, uh, and I, I fucking hate it. Uh, Alistair, favorite movie of the year? I mean, it, it's certainly <laughs> the, uh, the runaway favorite to, to pick up some Oscars, I think, if I'm going to put on my prediction hat. Um, not because it's good, but because it's, uh, it gives the illusion that it's following in the footsteps of all of these classic epic romances that used to dominate the Oscars back in the early days. And I think that that illusion is just enough to, uh, to, to win some Oscar voters over because, I mean, you know, they're not going to, you know, go for the films that people want to watch, you know, Back to the Future, of course, one of the best films of the year, according to the general public, is just not, not nominated for Best Picture because they want to focus on the films that they don't really make anymore. And this mm-hmm. is the quintessential film that doesn't get made anymore. And the reason uh, that it doesn't get made anymore is because it's absolute barring wank uh, that you just cannot possibly care about. Like, mm-hmm. it, yeah, a romance with no chemistry and Meryl Streep doing a funny voice. What a funny voice, Yeah, it's, it's weird. <laughs> well, the, the funny voice is, is like, I can't even... Uh, she's supposed to be from where? Like, uh, not, uh, not Brussels, but Denmark, yeah. But it's just like I I don't I mean I don't know a ton of Danish people. Let's be honest. I've never been to Denmark. But whatever she's doing is some strange comic interpretation, and because it's coming out of her mouth, the whole thing just it feels very off. Especially because she is committed to this ridiculous accent, but no one else in the film is committed to their stupid accent. So it's one person trying too hard, and everyone else kind of phoning it in. And and when you have her across from Robert Redford, who's supposed to be from England, if I'm not mistaken, right? The, the original character, I think they just they dismissed it. It's yeah, he's just American now. I believe because Sidney Pollack just decided okay. that there's no British person alive who's Robert Redford, in which he is technically correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Who gonna call up for that role? Uh, it, it's just it's odd though because even the other Danish characters, there's there's a little bit of an inflection here, but there's not whatever Meryl is doing. Also, she is supposed to be some sort of, like, you know, lonely, searching for love woman, but her performance is just, it's so, like, muted and sexless, and I find it very odd 
that there, there's like there's no chemistry between her and anyone else, anyone else. And she spends the entire movie just sort of either pouting or telling black people wearing gloves to like pick things up and put them in other places. And to me, that that just isn't very enjoyable. I don't know. It's an insane <laughs> film. It's a, I don't understand. It's based on uh, this woman's memoirs who I, I she must be a hell of a prose writer because honestly there must be something to get that book published and it's not in this movie um yeah this is literally a movie about a, a woman who has to settle she wants to marry royalty but she can't so she has to marry royalty's shiftless brother oh woe is her and then she just decides <laughs> to move to africa and then she's very lonely there because there are no white people there and that's that's the core <laughs> struggle of this film is a woman who's basically looking to date but moved to an entirely different country and views all the people who live there already to be unworthy of her. And we're supposed to hang with her for three hours and literally care about anything she says or does. It's awful. Yeah, mm. you wonder what the ethos of this film is, is meant to be because it, it is a very... Uh, antiquated notion, I would say. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what are, what are Pollock's thoughts on aristocracy and colonialism and stuff of that nature? It's hard. It's hard to say in this film. It, it's conflicted throughout. It's almost like a, you know, on one hand he's saying this is bad. We we gotta give these people back their land. But on the next, uh, he speaks out of the other side of his mouth at the time, going, "Oh well, except for some of them are good, right? Some of these." Uh, Colonizers are, are good folks who are making life better for these uh, primitive Africans. The phrase that kept coming to mind while I'm sitting, just enduring this film, is quiet dignity. I think that's it. That's <laughs> the view of Africans. They have a quiet dignity, and it's quiet because they don't get to talk. And that's it. Yeah. That's as much as he's applied. Well, and, and look at how they try and frame uh, things that are supposed to be, like, make us sympathetic towards the characters. Even Robert Redford, who is is sort of presented as this one-dimensional, like, quiet, macho, but sensitive man, like the perfect man. The one thing he gets really upset about in this movie, well, two things, actually. One, uh, Meryl Streep won't let him fuck around, and that's annoying, which we get it. You're Robert Redford. And two, he gets mad at one point because he's just like, man... How are we going to make any money? Things aren't like they used to be. Uh, you know, they're, they're really restricting the ivory trade these days. I can't go blast an elephant in the face with a shotgun like I used to. <laughs> You're just like, oh, gee, I am so sad for you, Robert Redford, the way you can't shoot an elephant. He has layers. I mean, he's also kind of the voice of the, I don't remember the context at this point, where at some point he kind of just mentions how, you know, maybe maybe people who live in Africa, you know, maybe they know a thing or two. And then it just kind of wanders off, but it's sort of like a rebuke of the the British colonialists, uh, you know, and they're kind of said like African people, they they make fine servants, and that's it. And he's like, maybe they'd make more than fine servants, but also I need someone to get me stuff right now, and that's pretty much the film. It's yeah, it's, exactly. it's bewildering. I just don't understand who, like, short of your air conditioning being out, I don't understand why anyone would show up to cinema to endure two hours and 40 minutes of two of the oh. least charismatic, likable characters in cinema history kind of not doing anything together. There's a sex scene later on, and it's just sort of like, okay, fine, um... Yeah, just utterly mm -hmm. unromantic, unsweeping. It's like the, the 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 pull of this film, the lure of it is essentially we brought a camera to Africa. 
well done. Yeah. You make a documentary. Congratulations. That's it. It's beautiful looking yeah. film. Did did great work there. I don't know if Sidney Pollock has like shares in Kodak film or something, and he's like helping him sell out new reels, like by making this thing nearly three hours long. But uh, it's it's good work uh, visually. It's just other than that, nothing else happens. It's just a appalling waste mm-hmm. of time. It is just like being just dead. I guess. <laughs> yeah. There are like maybe five minutes of the film that you could say are good, but it's probably good for like the various tourist boards of Africa because you've got all of these beautiful sweeping aerial shots. They're actually quite pretty to look at, but mm-hmm. when placed in the context of everything else, it's just the film is just dragging its heels to an even longer runtime than it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. The, the best parts of this film are the establishing shots and transitions because no one is talking and you get to look at the beautiful scenery like, oh, African sunset, that's gorgeous. But then it's like, okay, now uh, remember, you need to care about Meryl Streep. And I know that she's kind of an asshole and that she wants to marry royalty and that might not be too likable. But remember, she's really nice to her slaves that she has. I'm sorry, <laughs> servants that she has. And remember when she saw a little African boy and he had a gaping wound on his leg and she said, hey, if you get that wound fixed up, I'll let you be my servant and then get mad when you don't cook chicken the way I like it. <laughs> it's cool. I mean, how could you not love her? Meryl, right? You'd think you were, you were adding some sense of hyperbole to that but you aren't. That's oh. literally insane. With her, with her fucking Swedish chef-ass accent, she's like, ooh, dude, why, why did you make me fish instead of the, the chicken? <laughs> it's like, stop that. Fucking stop it. And the great thing about that scene is, it's like, yeah, yeah, you can work for me if you go to the hospital. Doesn't offer, like, a lift to the hospital. Just, yeah, just make your fucking way there yourself, and then I'll make yeah. you work for me again. Not like his leg is broken or anything. <laughs> it just has, like, a fist-sized hole in it from a, a gangrenous infection. <laughs> Who needs a ride? But, you know, karma is at play here because she eventually gets an infection of her own in the form of syphilis. So, you know, that's karma at wet play in the screenplay. Not yeah. not covered yeah. is the fact that her husband does probably spread syphilis to, like, a hundred African women that he raped. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's fine. Africa's overpopulated so far as I understand from this film. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's incredible because as... as unlikable as the characters are, Meryl Streep's sole character trait is essentially she can't have children. We are supposed to infer from that the world of womanhood and bestow it upon her mm. while she does a funny accent. Yep, that's it. She can get syphilis but not pregnant. So uh, we're supposed to be like, oh man, that sucks. Yes, yeah, like imagine being a woman and you can't have a child and you live in Africa and you just own other people's children, kind of. I, I think that speaks to, like, who this applies to. Like, this is the ultimate, like, upper-middle-class romance fantasy. Like, if I, if I was, like, 42 and, and, and just, like, a spinster, this would be my shit. I would totally identify this. Like, I am financially independent, I am unmarried, I cannot have children... And and this is my film. I have chosen to embrace it. But it's it's fucking useless. It's just God. It's fucking trite. And she starts financially independent. That's what I don't get. Like she has the money to start with. And so okay, so she has to get some kind of a marriage to I guess legitimate the money. Because as a woman, maybe she's not allowed to invest as freely. Because you know yeah. that kind. Of, okay, Dutch that, rules. That could be a thing to focus on. It's kind of like, oh, I just went into a loveless marriage with this dude and we just kind of like keep our own spaces and then we just go to another country and take over and that's how I have my business. And it's like, 
Yeah, like none of this is like sympathetic in the slightest. I know we've gone over this. It's just, it's just incredible to me. I, you know, even upper middle class people, like it's just, it's very boring. There's, it's, it's glacial mm-hmm. pace. Um, I believe Sidney Pollock has said that he, uh, the pacing of the film is like life in Africa, which is exactly the kind of thing you would say if you didn't live there. Um, yeah, what the fuck does he know to yeah, say that? That's yeah. absurd. Yeah, no, it's exactly. slow because they don't have, you know, New York City. That's that's it. Oh. And, you know, it's... I, I think it kind of felt like wandering the Sahara, personally. Yeah. Like, you're just lost and dying slowly over a long nothing, period of time. Nothing about the process or the production of this makes sense. Cause it's like, it's slow to, you know, mirror life in Africa. It's like, no, it's just slow. Like, African people can do things, I would imagine. This film doesn't do anything <laughs> like that. Secondly, Meryl Streep apparently won over Pollock to get the role for this by showing up in a push-up bra and a low-cut top to prove she could play sexy, oh. which is... Frankly, it's like Sigourney Weaver or someone like it. I, I, it's like, yeah, Sigourney Weaver showing up like to the audition for Alien and belting out the entirety of Pirates of Penzance to prove she could sing. It's like, it, is, it has <laughs> nothing to do with the end product. They could have, anyone yeah. could have done this, frankly. Um, Meryl Streep mm. is building, for, for me, like a remarkable career of incredible performances in films that I never want to see again. Uh, with a few exceptions. So, uh, you know, and the accents, French Lieutenant's Woman, uh, Sophie's Choice, this, like, just stop, please. <laughs> just just be American. Just be- Accent gets the Oscar, oh, baby. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure she'll evolve going forward in her career, you know, take <laughs> some other approaches. Yeah, I'm going to make a bold prediction and say that, you know, if anything, this is just going to encourage her even more. And from now on, the only Oscar nominations she will get are for doing roles, where she has a funny voice. <laughs> just, just going to make that prediction. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think you're on point. That, that makes sense. It seems like that's, that's the line to follow. Like good acting, it's not about what you're doing on screen. It's about how you sound. And do you sound like you normally do? No. Congratulations. Here's your golden statue. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This was just a slog, and and the fact that like, I I feel bad, guys. Like we you know we had to we had to watch this for the show, and I I just like to offer you a personal apology, and uh, I I am sorry for sucking three hours out of your life. That was not fair. Well, maybe something good could come of this, and you know all those colonizers will take the film's advice and get the fuck out of Africa. Ah, we can only hope. Well, you know. Uh, let's 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 move on to something different from the best picture category. Uh, out of Africa, a lot of melodrama, a lot of romance, kind of drags its feet. Why don't we go to a comedy? Oh no! What if the comedy wasn't funny and had zero jokes? Uh, we also watched Preetzi's Honor, which stars Jack Nicholson as I don't know, like Chef Boyardee with a lobotomy, and. Uh, Oops, he married a, a mob hit woman, and he's a hit man, and what if they got to hit each other? Wouldn't that create a little kerfluffle? And somehow, uh, once again, a movie with no chemistry, no romance, and no jokes, despite being pitched to us that way. Uh, what in the fuck is Pizza Honor? Alistair, walk me through this, man. Help me. Um, so it seems like a classic high-concept dark comedy. Um, the sort of thing that I'm, I'm seeing up-and-coming comic actor Danny DeVito uh, uh, preparing to make a lot of. Yeah, it's like one of his films with all of the jokes taken out, quite Mm. frankly. Um, It's like, what if you had a high-concept comedy that was all high-concept, and instead of writing jokes, you just got everybody to speak in funny accents, 
thus creating the illusion of comedy. Because if they say something in a funny voice, th- then you don't even need to write anything funny. Their delivery is just selling the material. Um, yeah. And no, it's an absolute fucking slog. How is this over two hours long? Is my big question. I am completely gobsmacked by the runtime. It's and it's another one too where uh, it's it's like a it's like a theme for this year's best picture nominations where you get to a certain point and then you're like, oh my god, this is still going, and then you realize it's gonna keep going even though it has nowhere to go. It's incredible stuff. Look, I'll tell you, high concept. What is more high concept than making a film about the Italian mob? And not hiring any Italian people. <laughs> Incredible concept. Um, Robert Loggia's in there. Is he might be? I think that's about it. Yeah. He was third build in this film for some reason, even though he seems to have about uh, two lines of dialogue. Yeah. This is actually a big joke at, at the Italian community, like at large. It's just like, hey, we, we hired a bunch of Irish people to play Italians. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and for us, yeah, but for them, not so much. And then, God, what is William Hickey doing? Is he okay? I always forget that he's like, he's he's only like 57 years old. He's not that old, but he's just like, I had a pretty family. Charlie, Charlie, I want you to lead like, You think he's, he's like the Crypt Keeper. He's just going to keel over and die at any moment. I don't understand if his, like, his performance actually is the most confusing to me in this film. I genuinely don't know if what he's doing is brilliant or insane. Because he's playing the elderly yeah. mafia Don, but he's, he's, his name is William Hickey, so that's a bit of a giveaway that he probably shouldn't have got that role. Um, and yeah, he just looks like an absolutely just desiccated corpse, but he isn't in real life, I guess. And he just slurs his words, and he just looks really uncomfortable all the time, and I don't know if he's like leaning into like some kind of a Marlon Brando parody, or if this is mm-hmm. some... Uh, like, absolutely bewildering and um, compared to everyone else like jack nicholson acts out this whole thing if meryl streep is like i'll put on a funny accent jack nicholson is like i will just pretend i'm an heroine there's just this just sluggish <laughs> like this is a man on opioids he's just this sluggishness um i wouldn't be surprised frankly if if a large chunk of this film was shot you know um just around jack nicholson that might explain some of the staging that he just refused to move or couldn't they just had to like kind of like incorporate him into scenes yeah, I want a wellness check for half the cast at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not a hitman. I don't know a lot about it, but I imagine it's a kind of job there where reflexes and quick thinking could be important and useful. Nicholson communicates none of those things. Um, so yeah, again, high concept. Remar- like nothing in this film clicks together, um, which really makes it very interesting on paper and very difficult to sit through in a cinema. Yeah, Nicholson's performance is, is staggering to me. Like, uh, off a, a string of great performances, certainly, but this is not one of them. Uh, he's certainly not doing any real vocal work here, but he's doing a lot of face acting, I guess. At, at, uh, if he's trying to face act, what he's trying to convey seems to be that his character is brain damaged in some way like he, he just never closes his mouth he's got this drooping slack jaw throughout the entire film and I, I i just don't have any idea what he's trying to convey with this role it's it's quite a terrible lead performance oh i'm just i'm just gonna say absolute categorically at least i'm confident there's no way in hell angelica houston is gonna pick up an, an oscar for her performance terrible yeah <laughs> Absolutely terrible. What were you going to say, Alistair? No, I was just going to say, the best way of describing this form of comedy is it's it's the sort of comedy where you can tell 
that everybody on set had a great time making it and they just got so caught up in how f- much fun they were having on set that they didn't realise that none of the material was really working at the level that it needed to, you know, be hitting. And, yeah, it's just, it's an absolute disappointment, um, and especially for John Huston, but um, ho- hopefully he's got he's got a fair few more films left in the bank. So, uh, mm. yeah, hopefully this isn't going to be the end of his career. It's bizarre choices from Houston in this one too. The way this opens is, is you'd almost think it was it was going for an out of Africa sort of classicism. Like it's very slow and deliberate in its its credits, uh, and the opening scenes just set this sort of bewildering leaden pace for for a film that's aimed at, at comedy. Yeah, the the opening scenes are like honestly like like the leopard, you know, the Visconti film. It's like a lush, it's like this huge teeming wedding scene, and it's just, I feel like it's half an hour long. I don't think that can be true, but it absolutely just lingers. And at a certain point, I was just kind of like, we're still here. Like, should shouldn't we go somewhere else? Um, and and it's supposed to be, uh, I guess it's supposed to be the meet cute between Nicholson and Turner, but um. Well, he's just slack-jawed and, like, leering at her up on a balcony. It's like, what the fuck? There's nothing cute about this film. <laughs> yeah. That's how you get chicks, man. Yeah, that's, you just go, Hey, King, who's the girl in the purple dress? I don't know, mister. Why don't you? Here's $20. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking at the cast list here. And it's, uh, let's see, um, we've got Angelo Pop Partana, played by John Randolph. We have Charlie Partana, played by Jack Nicholson. We've got Don Corrado Pritzi, played by William Hickey. Rosario Filarchi Finlay, played by Michael Lombard. May Rose Pritzi, played by Angelica Houston. This is this is <laughs> Italian American erasure. This is like a like you know the the Italian American community is well ensconced in the American culture now, but I mean there's still a couple of like you know, agreements, social contracts we should acknowledge, one of which is that if you're making a mob movie, they should get employment from it. Uh, none of you would hope no, so. This, is, this absolutely must be, uh, this would be like ripping down a Columbus statue. They, this thing should have been just uh, absolutely, you know, taken <laughs> apart by the Italian-American community. Uh, this is absolutely just unholy horror, frankly. Yeah, well, it's another one of those movies, too, where I, I feel like the crazy person. And out of Africa, I, I can see just the, the nostalgia and sentimentality that's wrapped up in it, and I get why people like it. This movie is, it's completely over my head what the allure is or why it's supposed to be funny. But then you look at the critical reception. I mean, obviously, it's it's nominated for eight Oscars. Uh, Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert both gave it, like, glowing reviews. Uh, Kale compared it to The Godfather acted out by the Munsters, which I'm not seeing any of that at all. I don't think it has the level of physicality. Although, if there was a laugh track, maybe that would be the cue that I needed in order to understand the humor here. And Ebert said that it's a movie so dark and so cynical and so funny that only Jack Nicholson and Kathleen Turner could have kept straight faces during it. And I'm like, is it just... Is is that it? Is it just like a level of navel-gazing and, like, insular comedy where the movie thinks it's so fucking funny but it kind of veils that so much that i am incapable of seeing the jokes or maybe i'm just a big idiot that's the other option here i suppose i don't know i mean we we only like alistair briefly mentioned i mean the the plot is literally a guy meets a girl at a wedding 
he falls head over heels in love with her. They end up kind of hooking up in a relationship. He's a hitman for the mob. He doesn't tell her. It turns out she's actually also a professional hitman. So, um, so, so there's a conflict of interest in the fundamentals of them being together. Because what would happen if they had to, say, for example, uh, kill each other? Which, guess what happens um, approximately six hours in? It's, yeah, <laughs> but beyond that, like, what's dark and cynical here? Um, I, I guess because, um, I don't want to spoil it so much, but uh, look, one of them one of them gains the upper hand and doesn't seem particularly, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I, I guess the, the play on this is that, you know, if you devote your life to crime, um, ever, all other social institutions kind of crumble away. But we've had, mm. I mean, the Godfather covered this we've had two of them they were you know and they've they've done remarkable work in that in the scope of godfather part two which frankly has more laughs in it as well um yeah i just i don't see this is not new territory at all uh this is i'm like, honestly mm-hmm. i'm just thinking you know something like miami vice the hit tv series is on right now um i mean that's that already covers the idea that if you, and this with police officers, it's even darker that, you know, if you absolutely dedicate yourself to this life of, like, pursuit of a goal, you know, everything else in your life is going to fuck up. You're, you're going to have a really bad time. You're going to become a poisonous person. You're not going to like yourself. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's TV, and it's darker than this thing. I do not understand what movie Ebert and Kale watched, but it sounds great. I wish yeah. they'd send me a copy. Well, it feels like it doesn't explore that end until, you know, with 20 minutes left in this toweringly long film. All of a sudden, it's a character study on, on what this life is doing to Jack Nicholson. But prior to that, it's just meandering nothingness. And what, what staggers me most of all is, yes, this is nominated for eight Oscars, and, and one of them is not even for Kathleen Turner, who is, is really the only person who's a success in this with this material, I feel like. Mm. Absolutely, without her, it would be intolerable. I mean, with her, it is still also pretty intolerable. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fair. Fair with me. This is like throwing a a, a life preserver at the Titanic as it's sinking. You can't. There's not much you could really do to prop it up. Uh, You know, the. I guess the gesture is nice, but not a lot going on here. Uh, you know, the the real funny thing here is we're going to move on from this to another historical drama, uh, which tackles very serious, heavy shit, and yet somehow got more belly laughs out of me than Pizza Honor. And uh, also, it, it kind of touches on a theme that that is uh, or a through line in the Best Picture nominations this year, and that is uh, Danny Glover's got trouble on the farm again. So <laughs> we watched uh, we watched the color purple, and uh, man, it's a lot going on in this one. You want to talk about like sprawling historical epic dramas? Uh, this one, I mean, it it kind of even blows out the scope more from Out of Africa. It's got its own Africa segment, which is I don't know maybe a little bit better than all of Out of Africa. But uh, I guess this is not the kind of movie that I expected from Steven Spielberg, and I'm a little bit conflicted on it, but uh, a lot going on here. So, uh, Alistair, what, what do you think the odds are of The Color Purple picking up an Oscar this year? It's got 11 nominations, man. I know. Wow. I mean, 
I, I just can't see how it cannot possibly sweep all of the Oscars. Mm. I mean, Steven Spielberg, you know, he's been a darling of the Oscars for quite some time, but famously, when his films have been Best Picture nominated, he hasn't had a Best Director nomination. I mean, there's the famous video of him on the Oscar nomination morning for when Jaws was a Best Picture nominee, and, you know, he was waiting to hear the Best Director nominees, and all four names were announced. It was just about to be his name, and then instead they announced Fellini, who had a surprise nomination that year, uh, and it was just, you know, he was famously embarrassed, and since then he's just been building his reputation up to finally make uh, something that's just completely out of character for him, and, you know, I, I think it's a flawed film, uh, but there's still a lot to admire here. It's certainly, I think, the most interesting of the this year's Best Picture slate that we're watching through, um, I know that you guys disagree on that, um, but yeah, I don't know, it might just be because if we're just comparing it to Out of Africa, two historical epics, but one is just completely flat, its characters are completely uninteresting, and this spans entire decades, but has an a handle on its characters, and that makes their tragedies palpable, whilst also not making it such a, like... A uh, too overpowering uh, film to sit through. It's, it's as you said, Steve. It's a, it's a ve it's a very surprisingly light film in places, and it and it flies by in a way that the other sweeping epics that we've watched for this episode just have not been. Yeah, I I think like part of its strength too is the way that, that Spielberg directs it. Um, it. It has it has its highs and lows for sure. And I, I do think it's deeply flawed and, and maybe doesn't hit all the notes that it thinks it hits. And it maybe it leans into the trauma and the tragedy and the melodrama a bit too much for my personal taste. But the smart thing Spielberg does is the way that the film is broken up, it's long as shit. It's just as long as out of Africa, if not longer, maybe. I don't know. But it feels almost episodic to me. So it's easier to, to digest than out of Africa, which, as you said, Alistair, is just one single monotonous note of just just the just this brown note of shit that you have to sit <laughs> through for two hours and twenty four minutes or whatever, uh, which I, I I can't stand. But yeah, shout out to making a a movie where you know it, it focuses on like rape and abuse and trauma, but also has some like top-tier slapstick work, which I was not expecting. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's this. Uh, I agree with Alistair on this. I think this may be the most interesting film in, in of this group because, if nothing else, if it's not the best film, and I don't think it is, but um, I think it's the film that really puts to mind what a director can do. Um, and Spielberg has proven himself at this point. He is maybe, you know, he right now is the greatest director of kind of entertainment, pop entertainment cinema. You you can't beat mm -hmm. the guy who did Jaws and Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, E.T. Like, you know, you, like the guy, is, he's, he's just building this, this kind of reputation for moving between that and Close Encounters of the Third Kind brings in this kind of like complexity and stuff to it that is really he's like he makes movies that kids can enjoy that also really resonate with whole populaces of people. It's it's very impressive. The the problem with the color purple is that it's not really his story. It's 
really peculiar that uh, he's a white guy from I believe like Ohio and he's just making this movie about black experience in America and it's he's being quite respectful of it but it's it, there's a very strong feeling for me watching it that I'm always I'm on the outside peering in you know um and like you mm-hmm. say the tone shifts in strange ways I mean it, it opens with literally with like incest rape children being ripped from their mother's arms like literally newborn children ripped from their mother's arms and taken away from them and then Quincy Jones little jaunty score picks up and then we have like a funny scene where a guy like you know falls over he he burn he throws kerosene in a in a heater and it blows up the house um there it, it keeps the, it's a movie that's incredibly easy to watch um because it's modulated so well but it just it never digs in for me it, and so it's oh there's this remove to it so yeah it's a strange film i think it's it does an enormous amount of things really well i'm really impressed one thing I'm very impressed with is there there isn't like a white surrogate character stuck in. This really is a sea of black faces throughout its like two and a half hour runtime. Um, many of them I'm you know not particularly familiar with. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg it seems to be just kind of like thrust into this. Um, not someone I'm familiar with primarily. Um, and just really acquits herself very very well. Danny Glover up and coming is remarkable in this film. Um, I think certainly one of those guys. He's good. You know, he's just building this incredible body of work um yeah it's it's really it's really great it's just sort of like why is this a spielberg film it's kind of like whenever it kicks in it's just sort of like um you know i i just feel like this this needed something else um yeah i don't i don't know how better to sum it up really just that kind of like it just it feels it feels like the the blackest film you could possibly make that's probably still for white people the question I find myself asking with this film is, is it too easy to watch? You know, like, uh, Spielberg makes everything into populist entertainment, and I feel like it strips a lot of the weight out of some events in this film. And that, it can make it more accessible, and, and I'm not advocating that I necessarily want to sit through a, a pile of misery, but... At some stages in this film, I feel like some misery is demanded in order to appreciate the gravity of, of, of events occurring. And Quincy Jones' score goes a long way to stripping this film of any of that. Uh, I, I really am not a fan of, of that work. But uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm with Jack in a way that I, I wonder why this is a Steven Spielberg film. It, it's mm-hmm. coming off the heels of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is uh, honestly one of the most racist films of the decade, and uh, this is is kind of a make good, perhaps, but it's a, it's a strange, strange marriage of director and material. Yeah, I totally agree with that, and it, it's also interesting to me too because, as you said, it's kind of even though it's very respectful and um, it's it's amazing to see a movie that's it, I mean it's it's telling a distinctly Black American story, and it's using all black faces. I mean, the only semi-prominent white character is towards the end. Uh, we're introduced to like the mayor's wife who uh, newcomer Oprah Winfrey just cold cocks. <laughs> uh, her husband knocks out the mayor and then gets thrown in jail. And the reason she, she punches the mayor is because she um, reacts negatively to the mayor's wife going like, Oh, would you like to be my maid? And she's like, fuck no. 
Uh, and then, but she's punished for that because, you know, even though that's kind of the common theme throughout this is slavery has been abolished, but it's, it's still there. All those ghosts of slavery are still weighing everyone down. So she ends up being, Oprah Winfrey ends up being uh, this, this white lady's uh, servant for years and years and years and years. And that's the only, this, this character that pops in at the end, that's the only time we ever see a, a, a white character. But I love the way that she's she's shown because she's not sympathetic at all. She's a huge pile of shit. But also, not, she's not like cartoonishly villainous. She just seems sort of aloof and, and just generally shitty and, and like she doesn't know any better. And there's a great moment too where some, some black men are trying to help her because she's trying to drive a car and just fucking everything up. And she freaks out. And her defense is... But, but I've always been good to the colored people. <laughs> and then she accuses the black men of trying to attack her when they're just trying to help her out. And, and I think that, that sort of, it, it really resonates. Like, there's no, there's no white savior narrative here. This isn't out of Africa where Meryl Streep and, and her Swedish chef accent are descending into the, onto the black masses and trying to save them. There's none of that bullshit. And, and that's, that's nice to see. But then on the flip side of that, there's actually been uh, protests around this movie um, by like progressive black organizations who feel that the, the way that black men in particular are represented in this movie is actually destructive because every black man in the movie is a huge piece of shit. Uh, from my perspective, I see it as more of like a microcosm of this one particular family because Danny Glover's a piece of shit, but his dad's a piece of shit. Uh, Harpo is a piece of shit who is also part of this family. And so it feels more familial and generational uh, to me. But I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't know if you guys know this, I'm not a black man. So I, I don't think that's like my place to speak on it. But <laughs> I don't know. It, there's a lot of complexity that goes into this. And it is, it is odd because it's a Spielberg movie. And there's a lot that comes with that as well. And it does feel like we're kind of peering in from the outside sometimes. Yeah, it's not, it's not a film for me, but it is certainly a film that is uh, leaps ahead of the historical dramas that are also sharing this category. I, I feel like this is a remarkably watchable film for it, its subject matter and runtime. For better and for worse at times, I think. Yeah, there, there's mm -hmm. a tension, exactly. certainly, I think, between, as we say, Spielberg's watchability versus the consequences. I mean, Oprah Winfrey's character is so empowered and no-nonsense and kind of elevates you know the whole scene it's there's this great fun in watching her and in spielberg films there's characters who are like that are very fun to watch but then we we're faced with the consequences for being that way in this society um, and years of indentured servitude coming from one moment of just standing up for herself but the film kind of elides over that part for her it switches back to the main narrative um, and it, it all wraps up in a very uplifting moment uh, even with a redemption arc for Danny Glover's character, who is, uh, you know, just an absolutely insanely awful person throughout this, and and I suppose mm. we could say, you know, who knows, uh, who who knows what issues he's suffered with in his time. I mean, he's still, you know, a black man living in in Georgia in the the early 1900s. I'm sure he didn't have a happy life either. You know, he certainly no one in this movie is is living their best life. Um, but yeah, that, that tension just, it's peculiar, and it's kind of strange in terms of presenting this work as popular entertainment. And on the one hand, I imagine this is the kind of movie you could wheel the television into the classroom, get the VCR hooked up, and people would watch this, and maybe that's 
important. Maybe that's really helpful compared to maybe something that would be a little more scholarly, a little bit more thorough, a little hammer home, a little bit more of the gravity of these situations without maybe pulling punches, um, which I think this film mm-hmm. certainly does. But who wants to sit through that? You know, maybe you know some people do. I do. I'm a glutton for punishment, unless it's boring, like <laughs> out of Africa. But yeah, so I guess it's it's kind of weighing up the the scale of the necessity of this film. I think this film, on the whole, is probably helpful, probably you know, or, or somewhat useful at least. I don't think it's detrimental. I don't think it's it's painting of of black males as being. Uh, really terrible is you know I mean I feel like you could make this movie with white guys and and white guys suck too and you know it's a patriarchal system and that that's another movie you make that movie um this one mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of like yeah you know I I just think there's there's value in this one I just question what could have been and I suppose we'll we'll never know uh, at this point uh, the the film is made. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think that an easy way to sum up my issues with the film are with the resolution of the Oprah Winfrey character's arc, uh, in that she has been pistol-whipped, seemed to have lost a lot of her mental and physical faculties, and has been essentially subjugated uh, for probably decades. It's hard to say that the passage of time here is a little bit slippery, but not not problematic. But... Yeah, she's she's essentially a shell of herself, kind of just getting through the days. And and in the conclusion of this film, she just sort of gets fixed uh, somehow. All of a sudden, the, the switch flips, and she's back to her old feisty self. And it's just like, come on now, that's <laughs> that's not the way the world works. We we are confronted by the healing power of sass, which yes, is yeah. troublesome. <laughs> Right. The only the only way to officially uh, heal a, a closed head injury and and brain trauma is uh, with girl power. Yeah, it just robs it robs that story, which is a, a very impactful subplot in this film, of a lot of its power. I agree. Yeah, because it's like, oh, well, she she got pistol whipped because <clears throat> she was standing up to, you know, uh, patriarchal systems and, and incredible like reconstruction racism and all this really fucked up heavy shit and she was willing to stand up to it and she was the one character who would take no bullshit from no one and what do you get when you stand up and you're loud well you get pistol whipped and subjugated by your oppressor and then but but then her healing moment is is just like that it it rips all of that out it rips out the emotional impact of that uh so we can have a happy ending i i guess i i don't know i don't know but hey you know, uh, why don't we go from a giant, <clears throat> long, sprawling Spielberg epic to uh, the very first independently produced film that was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, also, it's, uh, it's, it's an international film, too, which is not something you see a lot in the Best Picture category. And my question for Alistair is, Alistair, who is your favorite Latin American gay man, and why is it William Hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Um, so I'm just going to just look at some context first, because the, uh, because before I get into it, there's a big change that's happened from the novel that this was based on to the film that we're seeing here. Because in the book, uh, the character, as played by William Hurt in the film, wasn't a gay man. It was a transgender woman. And inexplicably, oh. that has been changed from page to screen. Um, but it's... 
still written in this very confusing way where it assumes that gay men are just men who want to be women. And it's this just very peculiar characterization uh, that is not remotely authentic and it's just the very, very worst brand of sort of uh, straight people writing gay character tropes. Yeah, it's uh, that. Is, see, I didn't know that about the book. That's really interesting. But it kind of it sheds more light on uh, William Hurt's various affectations. Yes, yeah, I have and... seen him critically describe the portrayal in the film as being transgender. It's just I... Yeah, I'm I'm confused by it because uh, honestly, I think Hurt is great and he's up for the acting for best actor. And uh, honestly, I think he's the guy to beat. Um. I, I think he's really tremendous in this, and I, I'm going to acknowledge I'm maybe not the best person to judge the, the politics of the role, but I kind of, yeah, there's a, there's a specific line in the film where he says that if he, if he, had, if he were brave enough, he'd, he'd cut off his own genitals, which, I mean, seems pretty overtly a trans kind of a comment that he is, he, he, he considers himself to be a woman. So uh, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure where the film finds itself exactly or well and of course of... too we don't we don't get a lot of information in the background of why he's in prison other than at one point uh you know cause you could have assumed that whatever country he's in he was basically just just thrown in there for essentially uh being gay or trans or whatever uh we're not we're not given a ton of insight in that but there is one point where he's walking out of the warden's room and the warden says hey now that you're on parole make sure you don't molest any children it's like oh Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's implied uh, that he had a relations with a uh, someone underage at, at some stage, which again, yeah, he's, yeah, he's that in that corruption of a minor. Is a lot of stereotypes so that that are exactly. probably not. Exactly. If you're helpful. playing gay stereotype bingo here, uh, you just you just <laughs> filled your card. Uh, but but at the same time, I feel like even if the character isn't written with a, a, a ton of of nuance in that department, at least William Hurt, whatever he brings to the role. He's he's doing A plus work with maybe some C minus material for who this character is, and it, it gets a little more complicated too because even though the film never does a, a particularly great job in my mind of fleshing these things out, it has a lot to say about uh, just just the concept of escapism and kind of avoid uh, avoiding the personal and political turmoil and just kind of turning inward. And for William Hurt, it's just like. Dude, you've got all this shit going on in your life. You were you were thrown into jail, uh, I mean, for committing a crime, but in my head, partially because of, of your sexuality and who you are. And and his and his way of escaping from that is he turns inward and romanticizes like a Nazi propaganda melodrama. <laughs> and it's it's odd. It's it's. It's a fucking choice, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I think, because, yeah, my, my reading of this, I, I quite like this film, actually. I, this is uh, absolutely not a film I would have thought would be up for best uh, best picture. It's much better than those usually are, I think, or at least my, it, it aims its sights much higher. Um, you know, I think it's interesting in, in the idea that he his fantasy is kind of the perfect romance, but it's set into a Nazi story. Um that specifically, I, I guess it's kind of this idea of how we might position ourselves in, um, what do we say, in, in oppressive systems to kind of side with our oppressors or, you know, kind of position some degree of like internalizing their points of view and their 
prejudices and then kind of defining ourselves within them. I, I you know, I think there's an interesting counterplay. Should we mention Raul Julia plays? Um, it's really a two-man show. This film, the huge stretches of it are just two of them in a prison cell, and Julia plays a political activist who. A kind of an un. We don't know his politics, but he's a political activist slash, you know, terrorist. Um, by by the government standards, we would imagine probably since it's said in Brazil, he is of some manner of leftist extremist. I would imagine. Um, so it, you know, but but his politics are not exactly clear, but his devotion to it is clear. He's lived his life for it, whereas. Um, he's chosen his politics and devoted his life to it, whereas William Hurt's character has found himself being a, by his just very existence, either gay or trans or somewhere in between, of being a political actor just by existing, um, and how they both process escape or their responsibilities within their, or, you know, um, their rights. Um, Raul Julia's character is very assured of his rights, to act politically, whereas William Hurt's character is not. Uh, he, you know, he has to shy away. He's, he's frankly in a lot of danger uh, out in the open. So, you know, I think there's a lot going on in this film, and I would agree with Steve that maybe it's not. Um, like, this is a film that I feel has really strong elements, but it's not maybe quite riveting. It's just not quite up there, but still, I think very good. Uh, and um, unlike the three films we've talked about previously, I will, I'll watch this again when it comes out on video, you know, I look forward to it. So hey, I'll, re- I'll read the book, man. I, I would, I would actually, I'd, I'd love to read the book here. Cause the whole thing, it, it feels a little compromised to me. It's like all the ingredients are there, but everything is half baked. And, uh, maybe this could have borrowed like, uh, say out of Africa's runtime, do a little f- flip flop there. And then, and then they would have been able to flesh things out a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, as it stands, it's just it's it's a lot of good ideas and and sketches of good ideas and narrative threads that maybe don't pan out very much. They're they're never kind of taken to completion or or able to say as much as they want to say. Um, but I do I I do have to say I like the foil of of Raul Julia's character just because he is initially established as as basically the exact opposite of William Hurt's character. Like this is a you know deeply, loudly, proudly political, almost militant, brash man's man. And then over the course of the film, that that facade sort of unravels for us, and we see the commonalities between him and, and William Hurt and how those things are intertwined. Um, and, and then on William Hurt's side, we see him initially as just this um, compassionate and, and caring person who he's, he takes care of Raul Julia, but then outside of, of, of his time in the cell with Raul Julia's character, we see that he's actually kind of a dickhead and, and maybe playing both sides of things. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of complexity here. I just, I don't, I don't know why it didn't quite hit with me the way that I, I figured it should. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what I'm missing. For me, I think it was just sort of like some of the sort of really played out gay tropes that are within the William Hurt character that just sort of made me disconnect from it. Because, yeah, on paper, and the way this story is structured is incredibly interesting to me, and in addition to, like, the sort of, as as Jack was saying, this setting within this oppressive system, in this case the uh, Brazilian military dictatorship, and how you can take these stories of people under these oppressive systems and imagine yourself within them. Like, on paper, yeah, all of these ideas are great, but they don't really 
coalesce and it doesn't really help that it's fronted by this lead character who I don't fully believe in. And I do think that William Hurt does a good job with his performance. It's a very good performance that breathes life into a character that still doesn't fully make sense on paper to me. It just feels like a sort of taking a more fully fleshed out character from the source material and just watering it down in a way that would be sort of palatable to more mainstream audiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm willing to suspend my, my disbelief to a degree, but at the same time, when you have Lily White, William Hurt, with his, his beautiful, luscious, uh, you know, sandy blonde hair, and it's like, okay, this, this character's name is Juan. I don't know <laughs> if that guy's name is Juan. i got to be honest with Steve, you. Steve, let's be honest. Uh, in the wake of Out of Africa, at least he doesn't do an accent. That's true. That would that would have driven me. That insane, alone, so. give him the Oscar. Set the precedent. That's shut right. Merrill up. It it is odd because he's such on paper a terrible casting decision, frankly. But uh, he is the reason why I am particularly fond of this film. I I feel like he does take this thinly drawn character and just he makes me believe the sadness. Uh, he he feels authentically tropes aside like someone who's just trying to get by in the world and it's i i don't know this this power in this film i feel like i i am i it took a while for me to get into it i i thought the opening 15 to 20 minutes i was like this is not something for me but the longer you spend with these two characters the easier it becomes to sort of live in this world and i I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I don't think it's necessarily the best at this slate, and I think it is a very flawed film, but I, I'm i interested to see what uh, Hector Babenko gets up to next. Yeah, I think an interesting thing, um, talking about like a portrayal of a gay character, and it is, it's unclear if he's gay or he's transgender or you know if, he, if he's aware himself, if he vacillates between these feelings or something, you know, very much unclear. Um, but certainly... I can't think of many performances like that in cinema right now. It's it's a pretty thin field, particularly of, of men playing openly gay characters like this. Um, you know, and I, maybe the flaws will be, you know, kind of worn away in time. He might get reclaimed back in. I mean, I'm thinking upcoming films. Uh, we have Michael Mann's Manhunter coming out later this year, which is based on the source material. It's going to posit a really interesting messed up guy possibly uh you know kind of like gender confusion and so on but he's absolutely a bad guy he's he's a serial killer he's a really weird serial killer um but yeah maybe 1986 is going to become you know the year of the like the the weird weird queer representation in mainstream popular cinema and i i don't know if it will you know maybe it's too soon maybe we're not ready for that maybe we need more glowing you know kind of popular, you know, kind of friendly, friendly gay men in movies to, you know, smooth out the edges, but, you know, I, I don't know, I think it's interesting, um, I think, I think in time, the rough edges here might, might maybe be, be less problematic, I don't know, you know? And I will say this for William Hurt, that it is, you know, it's an incredibly brave performance, because I can't think of many straight actors who would take on a role playing gay, it's just, it, it, it is groundbreaking. I'm just happy we'll, we'll always be able to treasure William Hurt. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, well, you know, we've, we've got one more film to talk about, and uh, for my money, it might be the best of the bunch. It continues 
the theme of Danny Glover's Got Trouble on the Farm. <laughs> and you want to talk about representation. Boys, when was the last time you saw an Amish movie? Think about that one for a second. And uh, a, a, another acclaimed director, this one's from the guy that brought us Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, Peter Weir. So we watched Witness. So, Alistair, what, what the hell is this? Uh, well, it's, it's actually, it, again, the best sort of high-concept movies are the ones that you can sort of summarize in a sentence. And, uh, yeah, simply here, Amish boy goes to the city, witnesses a murder, f- family uh, in, in jeopardy, um, at, at risk of being caught out. Harrison Ford, cop, joins them in their Amish village. It's a fish-out-of-water comedy meets suspenseful cop thriller that forgets it's a suspenseful cop thriller for about 45 minutes in the second half mm. to just be Harrison Ford just chilling with the Amish. <laughs> Which is... Uh, yeah, you want to talk about some great Amish chill time. A lot of great... <laughs> I mean, he does. He hits all the notes that you want him to hit. Does this motherfucker raise a barn? You bet he raises a barn. <laughs> does he, like, make some furniture shit? Yeah, he's just... At one point, it seems like Harrison Ford actually just wanders into a workshop himself, and then the Amish lady that he's lusting over kind of goes in to bring him some lemonade, and there he is, and she's like, oh, you, you do woodworking? He's like, oh, yeah, but I just woodwork now. But it seems like he goes from like, shot in the gut and dying in the arms of the Amish to, like, full Amish in less than a week. It's an incredible transformation, you know? Um, but I, I think the thing that really drew me to this movie and why I enjoyed it is the way it, it kept subverting what I thought it was going to do. I've seen plenty of, of crime thrillers, both critically acclaimed and, and just straight pulp uh and, and this one, the, it was constantly subverting things. I thought it was going to be very procedural and police-driven. I didn't think it would have this... Uh, it's almost like a romantic drama for almost half the runtime. And then the way that it, it goes from that and kind of seamlessly goes back into thriller action mode is, uh, is surprising. And it's another movie, too, where there's, it, it looks beautiful. I mean, I would expect nothing less. I mentioned before, same guy that gave us Picnic at Hanging Rock, which, God, every frame of that is like a painting. So, um, but yeah, I I think the main draw for this one is just how surprising it was to me and how subdued and and confident and powerful Harrison Ford's performance was, which I I didn't know he had this level of range. Yeah, this is... um... It's strange because you don't realize it, but yeah, I think somewhere in the middle section you start to realize this is this is uh, uh, an America story, and this is kind of the, or maybe just honestly, maybe just a society story, just the the tensions between between just you know kind of commune living, making things with your hands, living kind of like easy and uncluttered lives, following instinct versus uh, urban living and the complexities of that and kind of organizing, you know, material wants and markets. I mean, it's a drug trade that specifically pushes this, the, the murder that uh, the child witnesses. Um, it, it's kind of like the two spirits of America fighting, kind of, I mean, somewhat reminiscent of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is, again, a film that, like, a tension between uh, kind of a white, colonialist civilization quote-unquote versus the untamable uh, australian wilderness um yeah it, it's peculiar that it just sort of um kind of just meanders out into and i mean maurice Shar's uh, soundtrack on this is i thought wonderful and really uh, not what i was expecting um kind of strangely menacing in the city strangely kind of uh, wistful in the in the countryside 
Um, yeah, it, it just kind of it, it, this is just largely Harrison Ford hanging out with admittedly a very attractive Amish woman who I think uses makeup that's probably not available to her. She's not very plain. Um, Kelly McGillis in this so a few a few liberties taken, but kind of really interesting. And then um, committing to its uh, to its thesis. Um, his cover is blown because he can't help himself when some tourists start messing with the Amish and the Amish kind of absorb it. It's just like, whatever, they're just, you know, they're just asshole tourists. We'll just let it go. Mm. And she can't, or Harrison Ford can't, his character. He has to go and beat someone up and makes people talk and brings attention in. And that's when the guys are trying to escape come back in. And this is kind of the, the lure of violence of justice of... Uh, you know, kind of this petty idea of standing up for yourself in this context becomes harmful. It's kind of a really interesting story of how America built itself up as an agrarian to an industrial to a post-industrial society. Um, it's surprisingly layered for a movie that is just mostly about barn raising and being plain. Yeah, I, I'd also like to, to highlight Jar's score because I, I think it uh, it really reinforces a lot of the themes you're discussing, the way it marries this sort of new wave synth sound with these traditional sort of Amish tunes that are playing and throughout. It, it's just, it, it's an interesting soundscape that fills this film. And, ah, man, I, I actually really appreciate this. I think that on most levels, it's just, it's just a tight package with Witness. I think this is easily the standout of the bunch we have here, but I take little fault with anything in it. I, I, I think it's beautifully photographed. The, the score is wonderful. It's assuredly directed. All of the performances are exactly what they need to be. Yeah. Uh, it's I, I don't know. It, it doesn't. It doesn't really feel. I guess if, if I had to lob, lob a criticism at it, it doesn't feel like an Oscar movie to me. I like it, and it's it's stupid that I'm saying this because, I mean, this is a field of movies that, for the most part, I don't give a shit about, or at the very best, it's like I respect this, and also did do not want to watch it again. <laughs> uh, but but then you get a movie like Witness, and it's just like you could pop this on, you could pop this in your VCR uh, for anyone. You know, you got friends over, whatever, put it at family, whatever, night alone, watch it. It's it's just it's it's breezy and it's engaging and it's fun and it's it's definitely like populist filmmaking at its finest. But it doesn't. Maybe that's why it doesn't feel like an Oscar movie, and it, it kind of transitions nicely into my other question for you guys, which is like. What would be if you could pick a populist film to to swap out from this year? It seems like Witness. You could you could almost lop it out out and and in, inject something like I don't know. A, why why not a Back to the Future or even Cocoon? People, we got Cocoon fever sweeping America right now. Uh, so as much as I love this movie, it, it it feels totally out of place in in this field of films. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, how good must it be that it made it, I think, might be the the feel of it, because sure. it is, it's very easy to watch, and I feel like the Oscars, I feel like the Oscar commission just run this challenge for themselves, where if they really genuinely enjoy the movie, then it's out, like, it's, that's not, <laughs> that's not right, it, it has to, it has to stick in the craw a little bit, and certainly the rest of these movies definitely do that uh, out of africa is absolutely i mean i feel like that's one of those ones that you feel like it just deserves a prize because we all made it through 
um, you know, mis- a misplaced. <laughs> we win the thing. Oscar. Yeah, exactly. Special everyone, audience award. Everyone gets one. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is strange. Like this is just re- this is just really great filmmaking to take a simple story and text and infuse through the magic of cinema uh, that it you know it takes on all manner of other meanings and potentialities. Um, yeah, it's, it's just this is a good film and yeah you're right why is mm-hmm. this here um a little bit a little bit strange but i'm glad i i'm glad it made it yeah i mean i'd, I'd rather take a, a film like this that you know i'm not as passionate about this as you guys but i feel that this has more of a place here than say just the want to be sweeping oscar epics like out of africa you know this doesn't feel like it was made with oscar in mind and it doesn't feel like it was just nominated because it ticks the boxes or because it's been made by like a previously celebrated director, which must be the only reason that Pizza Honor is as beloved as it is uh, by the Oscar votes. Like, this just seems like people watched it, people liked it, and you know what? It, it stands up as what it is. It's, it's both populist and also nothing like other things that are currently at the multiplexes. I mean... I can't think of another Amish fish out of water comedy that is really uh, connected with people. Um, but you know, if if I'm forgetting something, please uh, let me know and fill in the blanks. Well, give it a few years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is gonna kick off. I'm a sure day. the Amish will be back. Yeah. <laughs> Never write off the Amish. I expect uh, Amish fever to just sweep the nation, and we're gonna have a huge, huge swath of of Amish films in the in the next five to ten years. Uh, but who knows? Who knows? So, yeah, I, I guess this transitions nicely to my my last question for you guys. And if, if you had to swap something out or, you know what, if they were like, this year we're adding a sixth film, what's it going to be? What's what's missing from this field? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and just say, honestly, 85 was an incredible year for genre films. So there was no way in hell any of them were ever going to get nominated, frankly. But, I mean... You got Fright Night, Reanimator. I mean, that was there's no way Reanimator's getting an Oscar nomination, sadly. But man, it was a great movie. Um, yeah, there's just so many just great. Ed, you had from Argento got Phenomena with Jennifer Connelly, that kid. She's uh, she's going places, I think. Um, yeah, there's so many great movies. Oh, Demons. Oh man, it's horror cinema in a cinema. Uh, Life Force, Toby Hooper. So, like, I mean, there's riches beyond in, in 85, just so many tremendous uh, horror movies in particular, um, Commando, the action movie, so, frankly, any of those, um, I would, like, I would watch those back to back to back, the same movie three times over, and that would be better than listening to Meryl Streep play a Dane. <laughs> Myros, uh, you got any you got any snubs on your list here that should have made it in? Yeah, you know, I think I would focus in on uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. I, this sort of post nineteen eighty four film that is really remarkable and it has been mistreated throughout uh, its release process here. Certainly not something the studio backed to get in on this conversation, but I do think it's a remarkable piece of work that might. Uh, have a more lasting impact than than something like out of Africa, if you can believe that. Yeah, kind of hard to think about, but <laughs> yeah, and for, and for me, like it's all you need to do is like look through the rest of the Oscar nominations this year to see that you know the Academy have actually watched some decent films, and it makes no sense why they'd nominate them in some categories 
but not Best Picture. So, I mean, you've got Akira Kurosawa's Ran. Um, he's nominated for Best Director. Uh, you've got Back to the Future, of course, aforementioned. We've got Brazil, aforementioned. And, of course, you know, everybody's favourite director, you know, lovable, can't do no wrong, and he's delivered another banger this year, and that is Woody Allen. Uh, with the Purple Rose of Cairo, can't do anything wrong. I think he's going to be, you know, churning out films year after year, and you know, I can't see anything happening that will stop us loving them Woody Allen and returning is the to them. Spirit of American cinema. If something happens to him, I think I don't know where we'd be, where we'd go. Oh yeah, I just I I I can't imagine a world where he's not just the most beloved director. Talk about a guy with a, a consistent output. He's constantly surprising us. Uh, with with new revelations and just just pushing himself in different directions in his career. Now, if we were talking about auteurs who are doing a little bit of a non-traditional uh, film this year, I, I'd also like to mention Scorsese's After Hours, which is a blast. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And and the fact that that's just completely snubbed is is crazy to me because I think it it doesn't play like the kind of Scorsese film that we might expect from him, uh, but. God, the energy of that movie is incredible, and uh, he really he kind of stepped outside the box for himself, and I, th- I think it paid off immensely. So hopefully that's one that'll gain a following over time, perhaps in the in the video market. I guess I guess the lesson for Scorsese is if he wants Oscars, maybe he should stick to the mob films, but maybe stop hiring Italian Americans. Get them out of there. <laughs> yeah, try new blood. <laughs> yeah, Scorsese. Do you know any Irishmen? Because maybe you should hire more of them, kind of like in, in Prince <laughs> that's of interesting. Right? Hmm. Yeah, something to think about. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, for me, I keep going back to the idea of like what uh, what an Oscar movie is. Like, what does that what does that look like? And a weird snub that uh, Myros brought up was a, a Room with a View. Like, isn't that just the quintessential Oscar movie? And somehow uh, missing off the list. So there you go. It's Who quite knew? an excellent film as well. Yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where. Again, if you're looking at, like, what, what constitutes, oh, a prestige Oscar film? It's like, well, yep, it's got this, 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 and this. It's got all the elements. Uh, but it doesn't suck shit, like, uh, out of Africa. So, you know, maybe just give that a nomination instead. Uh, we do have to wrap things up because we're getting close to time here. But uh, got to do our putovers. So, uh, you know what? We're going to let our esteemed guests go first. Alistair, what are you putting over this week? Um, so... By some strange coincidence, as well as watching Kiss of the Spider-Woman in the last couple of weeks, I also watched an, uh, another film um, by director uh, Hector Babenko, uh, which was his uh, 1980 film, uh, Pixote. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's a very good, a very grueling um, portrait of life inside a, a Brazilian children's prison through the eyes of a, a ten-year-old. Um, it is not an easy watch. Um, it is incredibly scarring, um, and yeah, seeing that, seeing Kiss of the Spider-Woman after that, you know, Kiss of the Spider-Woman is practically a walk in the park next to Pixote, so yeah, if you're looking for some real feel-bad cinema, um, seek that out, it's surely available on VHS at your local blockbuster. Love it, love it. Uh, again, we, we love grinding ourselves into dust and doing the same to our audience. That's kind of our ethos around here. So uh, definitely check that one out. Miles, what are you putting over this week? You know, uh, Jack was talking about genre films. I think I'll highlight one of my favorite from this year, which is uh, really an art film for our times. More people need to see the work of Larry Cohen uh, with his acerbic film, The Stuff, which really uh, 
it really takes the piss out of this Reagan era nonsense that we're living through right now. More people watch this, uh, surely we'll be headed down a less consumer-driven path going forward. No. Uh, Jack, how about you? What are you putting over? Well, I guess my putover is going to seem real, just real normy compared to you guys, but man, I am stoked for FIFA World Cup Mexico 86. It's going to be big. <laughs> Ireland didn't make it, sadly, but uh, a lot of great teams going to do their best. Northern Ireland's in there, inexplicably don't know how that happened. But um, that's fine. Nobody they need a distraction. Guys. There's some bad shit going on there. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mexico 86 going to be amazing. Uh, looking forward to it myself. Uh, you know, and as far as my putover goes, Jack, you, you mentioned it briefly earlier when you were talking about genre films as well, but uh, I wanted to put over Demons this week because I was thinking, like, is there a film that mirrors the experience of watching Out of Africa in a movie theater? And the answer <laughs> is Demons because it's a movie about, uh, I mean, literal demons popping out of the screen and uh, torturing people and tearing them limb from limb. And that's what Out of Africa felt like to me. So... Uh, thank you for bringing that one up, and hopefully people check that one out as well. Uh, I, I think there are it, it is out on VHS now, so you can you can check that out at your local video store. Other than that, I guess we got to uh, wrap things up. Remember, if you want to support Optimism Vaccine, you can uh, write us a letter as as you you know you can. Uh, you check out the address for for that for sending us letters, or if you prefer, uh, you can you can financially support us as well. So. Uh, there's there's ways to do that. Just send it to the Optimism Vaccine P.O. Box, and we would love to hear from you or uh, take your money because wouldn't you believe in, a, in the year of our Lord, 1985, film criticism does not pay the bills the way you think it would, but who knows? Steve, check your calendar. It's 1986. Oh, it's 1986. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, we're still we're still young in the year, so you know how it goes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I can barely afford a uh, a three bedroom apartment in Manhattan with my my current salary as a film critic, and uh, it's just things are things are getting tough. I would say, to be fair, Adam, our president doesn't know what year it is either. So <laughs> yeah, how can I be expected? The bar is so fucking low, man. And then God, like these these movies we watch, t- Jesus. Out of Africa, no thanks. I've just, I'm out of patience. I'm done with it. Another Oscar year in the books. Looking forward to next year, Alistair, our international correspondent. Thank you again for being on the show. Appreciate you, man. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, Always great to be back. All right. Well, we'll be back again next week. Bye bye. (laughs) 